Hi everyone, welcome to Moon Juice, where we have the conversations we crave. We have my dear friend Eric Patterson on this episode. Eric is one of those just very high quality, intellectual, and emotionally intelligent friends that I have spent hours and hours with, just talking about life and existence and other various philosophical subjects. Before we get into the juice of our conversation, I want to mention that it is a bit difficult not to go into the political issues that we're facing right now, especially since this conversation is on the topic of our relationship with technology. And I'm going to be honest, I get nervous going public with any sort of political outlook, but I honestly just want to say that I am so fed up with this societal division and this social and emotional incapacity to engage in conversations with people that we disagree with. Empathy is a word that arises a lot in this conversation, but thinking about it now, an even better word or a word that I should have included is compassion. Regardless of what political party someone chooses to identify with, the thing we should acknowledge first and foremost is that they're human. We are all human, with incredibly similar psychological and biological constructions. And in the instances where we see someone not having much empathy or compassion for the other, the best thing to do, in my opinion is not fight back with the same attitude because at that point, you're really just stooping to the same level as them. I think that could be one of the most important things to remember as we relate to each other in this new world. So that's that. I'm Asia Takara, and let's get into this. Welcome to Moon Juiced. Oh, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me here. <laughs> okay, so let's actually go into how we met, because we met through a, a great <laughs> club. Yeah, I think it, it was a great club. It was the, the Psychedelic Society at UBC. <laughs> I don't think I, either of us have been a part of it for a few years now. Yeah. But... It was a great place to meet, a great place to find uh, common interests, and just a fantastic forum for discussion, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that when we first met, we'd have hours-long conversations about various topics of philosophy and consciousness and life and death and all of that, so I'm excited to be able to continue that with you here today. I remember our six-hour-long conversation on existence at the UBC what is it the nest the nest yeah i remember we, we sat we sat in the basement there i think uh just until about the building closed because we just kept wanting to to talk about it um what we thought life and death were consciousness existence why we're here all, all of those um were questions that i think that we were able to have some great discussions about yeah that's why you're so fucking perfect for for this episode (laughs) for my podcast (laughs) i'm glad i can be here yeah so i reached out to you because i watched the social dilemma uh the documentary Mm -hmm. and so eric and i have been talking about our various concerns with society or whatever or at least eric has been telling me about his (laughs) concerns for society yeah yeah (laughs) And I never fully understood until, until I watched the documentary. But dude, let me actually just say that I I ate an edible before watching the documentary. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> okay. And I mean, maybe, that, that could either turn out really good or, or really poorly. Well, <laughs> I don't get high very often mm-hmm. anymore, uh, but. Yeah, I I was watching the documentary because I kept hearing about it, mm-hmm. and then I was like, "Cool!" Like, just ate the edible, and was like, "I'll I'll watch the documentary because mm-hmm. I hear great things about it." And halfway through, when the high started kicking in, 
my heart was pounding out of my chest. <laughs> and I immediately was just like, yeah, I, I shouldn't have gotten high for this. I should not have gotten high for this. And then I couldn't sleep until 2 a.m. Oh, no. Because I was just thinking of of humanity. But also documentaries kind of play those psychological tricks on us. Or not psychological tricks, but they have a way of seducing us into the message of, of what yeah, they're talking about. Yeah, so about. I, I'm interested. What parts of that documentary started to make you anxious? It was the idea of, well, just how information, it's, it's basically... It's basically propaganda in a way because we're just being fed information that that we want to see. Mm. So everyone's being fed information unique to how the algorithm has been collecting data about them. Yeah, I mean, you, you basically summed it up. I think that that's, that's the main problem that the social dilemma is talking about is what happens to society when every single person is viewing the world through their own personalized uh, screen. And it's almost like, humans have always had a, a tenuous relationship with what is real and what are the just stories that we tell in our head. Mm -hmm. And I think for a very long time, that problem was slightly resolved by the fact that we all still had to exist in this real physical world. But suddenly, that's changed. And, and currently, with coronavirus, we're all existing almost in purely virtual worlds. And in these virtual worlds, you can create whatever reality you want. You can change a story and tell it from a specific perspective, or edit the information, or take little sound bites out of context, and stitch them together to tell the narrative that you want to push. And I've been worried about this for a while. Um, so so for, for my, my background, for anyone listening, I study cognitive science, or cognitive systems, rather, at the University of British Columbia. I'm in the psychology stream. And that is a program that really studies what are what is intelligence and what are intelligent systems both in humans and computers and so for a really long time I've, I've been interested in what is this relationship between humans and computers and why does it seem like well my computer which i'm sitting in front of right now is simultaneously my greatest tool for productivity and for information and for creativity as well as my most distracting device that gives me the most anxiety. It's this weird double-edged sword. And I think that that documentary starts to point the finger at why exactly we feel that way. You know, the documentary, or the way, the way Tristan was talking about how the internet has evolved throughout time, mm. it was like, he was essentially saying that there has been a new species introduced into the world and that's ai in a way i think he's totally correct um you can think that you know th think of relationships right for a long time we've had humans and the world and you know that's a, that's a complicated relationship at the best of times right but there's still only really two relationships to manage there. What is the human's relationship to the world and what is the world's relationship to humans? But we've since added in almost a third thing to this relationship. And instead of it just being two, now, now like the human's relationship to the world and, and the world's relationship to humans, we've since adding in this external thing of, of computers it's not like, okay, we have to worry about our relationship to the world, the world's relationship to us, our relationships to computers, computers' relationships to us, computers' relationship to the world, and the world's relationship to computers. And that's a lot, right? Suddenly, we've gone from two relationships to six. And the reason that this happens is that computers, in a way, are their own being. They have this sense of autonomy and agency that we've programmed into them. Uh, you know, lots of people talk about 
you know, some futuristic AI thing that exists on its own. Um, you know, you can think of the Terminators or oh, there's, so there's so many examples. Terminator is, is the one that, that so many people know. Um, I, I think that it's a little bit misleading mm-hmm. because you don't have to have something that is fully autonomous in order for it to still inject uncertainty into our world. It, it, and computers at their current point in time have enough, I want to say, agency and, and self-autonomy that exist, especially within these, these larger systems that like Facebook or Google employ, that it's, it does feel like some kind of external thing to us that acts on its own. And that really complicates our relationship to the world. Well, I think the thing that most people aren't acknowledging is that it is acting on its own. The algorithm, it's literally picking up data that it's been gathering throughout our entire lives, mm-hmm. or essentially almost our entire lives. We've had the internet in our lives for most of it at this point, yeah. about half of it mm-hmm. in our generation. At least. at least our adult lives for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or especially our adult lives. Mm-hmm. But I think what's happened in the last few years, at least just with all of the division and the chaos that we're seeing mm-hmm. in our society is it's the byproduct of how this thing has started to kind of evolve in really complicated ways that we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge. It, it is difficult that the question of can we understand these things or, or not, the process that goes into designing these systems is quite convoluted. Um, there used to be a time where we thought that you know, we could create intelligent systems by programming in a long list of instructions. You know, kind of the, you know, if you see this, then do this. You know, if you run into a wall, then turn left and go around it. And we would explicitly program in each of those instructions. And in that way, it was, these machines were very human readable, right? We could, we could understand what they were doing. But as time has goes on, we've moved away from that explicit, um, what's called like the, um, like a symbol systems is what we call them, or like formal logical systems. Um, and Instead, we move to something called connectionist networks, right? So you might have heard of stuff like, you know, deep learning or GANs or adversarial training. Like all of these are within this realm of connectionism. And so you've probably seen pictures of, you know, a whole bunch of dots that are connected by lines and people say, oh, you know, this is, this is a network. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly how these types of systems work is you basically give them the inputs on one side and there's a whole bunch of connections and then it comes out with outputs on the other side. And so you, you give it training data, you, you give it um, examples and you tell it what the answers are. And then it can train this network so that it gives you the answer that you expected with that set of training data. It, it basically does a whole bunch of math. Um, but the problem with this is we say, okay, so we gave it this input and it gave us the right output. And you can ask the question, well, how did it know that? Like, like what, what, what's actually going on in here? Like, what is it actually thinking? What is it actually paying attention to? And we don't really know a lot of the time. When you look at these networks, there aren't a list of instructions anymore. There's just basically a spreadsheet of numbers, like millions and millions of these numbers that represent different mathematical weights between these nodes. And we have no idea what those mean, all we know is that it works. But just with your background Mm. in cognitive systems, how do you think, do you think it's, it's, it's just completely evolving on its own at this point? AI? (laughs) Is AI completely evolving on its own? I would say no. Um, It certainly seems to be doing some things on its own. For sure. I think that the the larger problem is that we have... We have this relationship with the world that is not entirely external to us. So 
and we can get into more and more questions of, of what is the self when we get into this, Ooh. but <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure you would love. Um, basically, the line between where we as humans end and our external world begins is often a, a lot more blurry than we generally tend to think. Absolutely. And I think that this is more clear than anywhere when we talk about computers. My computer is absolutely an extension of myself. Wow. Right? I, I would consider my phone to be an extension of my brain. And this is a very well-respected theory in the cognitive sciences, is that it's something called the extended brain or the extended mind, is that you know, our cognitive, like our intelligence doesn't just exist within our brain. It exists with everything that we interact with. Like, let's say that um, I asked you uh, a complicated math problem. Actually, we, we can do this. Um, okay, let's you know, try what, it. <laughs> what is 62 times 17 divided by 4? Answer however you want. Dude, you're, <laughs> you're asking the worst person that question. Yeah, okay. Well, okay, so... So what if I told you that you can, you can use whatever you want in order to answer this question? What I'd, would you do? I'd use my phone. Okay. So what's the answer to the question? I'd have to pick up my phone and, and <laughs> type it in, but I can't right now. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use the calculator <laughs> okay, on my computer just, 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 just for uh, this example here, right? So, you know, I said, what is this? I said it's like 62 times 17, what did I say, divided by 4? Whatever. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it's, it's 1,050. Okay. Uh, now, I think like, myself, like you, I, I, I might be able to do that question in my head mm-hmm. if I had a while to work on it. Maybe, and, you know, maybe if I had a, a piece of paper and a pencil, it would be a little bit easier. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I don't even know if I could do it purely in my head, I'm going to be honest. I think I would need a paper and pencil. I can't do those in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and but I, I think this is an interesting example because it showed that, okay, I have no idea how to do this within my brain, right? So what did I do? I turned to my nearest tool, my computer, in order to solve that problem for me. And you can ask the question, how much of this computer that I just used is a part of my problem-solving system? And mm-hmm. when we get, so this was a very clear example. Right? Of like, it's a mathematical problem. I used a computer to solve it. But it starts to get a lot more messy. You know, when I ask you, how much is your phone a part of your social life? It's the, probably one of the biggest parts of my social life. If not the biggest part of my yeah. social life. I think what happens a lot of the time, because we're emotional beings. Mm, mm-hmm. If we're using our phones to the extent that we do, and like you said, as if it's an extension of ourselves, mm. in a way, if we're not being, if we're not very aware of how our our feelings are running the show, especially in a political context, mm. context, then we're essentially kind of getting lost in ourselves. When we're going through our phone, going through our social media, seeing stuff that's triggering us, mm. and not being open to what's on the other side of that. Like, for example, if we're going through social media, seeing things that the algorithm is feeding us that it knows we want to see, what about the other side of, of the conversation? I wonder if people if people were seeing the other side of things, like for example, with Trump, Hmm. if people were getting most of their information from the algorithm that supports Trump, if their perspective on the world would be completely different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, once again, messy question to ask, because it's basically like, how does the information that we interact with affect our worldview and especially how much we're able to empathize with other people right when when all the information we see is hyper personalized and it's you know usually stuff that either makes you really angry 
um, really afraid or makes you feel good about yourself. That can really be a problem because it's like, okay, then things that make you angry are really distorted views of other people, right? Views of other people where they're being really dumb or really insensitive and it is usually triggered about something which is important to you and, and somebody is disrespecting that. And you can take these little cherry-picked examples of, you know, and you can, you can choose what it is, whether it's, it's gay rights or, or trans rights. Um, you know, th- those are things happening right now or, or perhaps racism. Um, it can be really easy to, on, on all sides, is to really create a distorted picture of what the other people are actually saying and actually believe about this when all you see is an online caricature of them. I get scared of getting political mm. in public because of the polarity, mm. but I'm bringing up the polarity to just to just challenge it. I mean, so CNN will just bring up Biden, Fox News will bring up Trump. Both ends will talk about how the other is just absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious where are the more nuanced people? So people that take in account both perspectives. I feel like when that happens, there there's even more chaos. I, I mean, I think that the, the nuanced people exist. I think in, in larger numbers than what social media would have you believe. And so mm-hmm. there is an interesting topic I was, I was looking into last year and this was the idea of memetics right so memetics was introduced by Richard Dawkins originally he's, he's an evolutionary biologist and he wrote a really famous book um, called The Selfish Gene all about human behavior and how it relates to genetics and Darwinism and near the end of the book he introduces an idea that information, like DNA, um, replicates itself. It transfers itself from body to body. And whatever information is most suited to the environment will continue to prosper. Right? It will continue to replicate further. And this was really interesting because what we've seen alongside all of these polarization problems is actually a change in the information ecology, right? Suddenly, instead of this information being transmitted from mouth to mouth, from human to human in this very physical form, it exists in this digital form. And what we found is like, in the same way that certain species, you know, there's terms like survival of the fittest, not quite accurate, but that, that kind of same concept applies. If the environment changes, what species survive in that environment will also change. So we've changed our information environment from a physical one to a digital one, and at the same time, what type of information survives has changed. And so when you see things like anger and fear and outrage as basically the exclusive content on some of these social media platforms Mm -hmm. that's because these environments and these platforms are basically creating an environment where that type of information thrives really well and we can get into the reasons why which is just it's profitable to do so yeah Uh, and this is what was being discussed a lot in the um, the social dilemma is these companies are using an advertising model to make money. And what that means is that the more time you spend on viewing their content, the more money you are worth. So they are incentivized to do anything within their power to make you spend as long as possible on these websites, on these platforms. Like, 
Like how many times in a, in a day have you gone on, let's say Instagram or Facebook, just to check one little thing, and then suddenly, like three hours have gone by. You know what? While I was watching the documentary, I kept getting these urges to check my phone, yeah. and it's it's very clear. I've been addicted to my phone since the phone came out. Mm-hmm. So, how do we keep up with with the evolution of our technology at this point? Because we have million year old biological brains, mm-hmm. right? So, what do we do with with this at this point? Well, okay. So, so I'll, I'll start by just answering your question, and maybe we'll get into <laughs> okay. So, the, the first thing is just get rid of all of the notifications on your phone that you can. I did that right? a while like, ago. Just get rid of them. Um, turn them off entirely. And interestingly, you'll find that you don't end up missing anything. You'll still go and check Instagram pretty often. Um, or like, like for me, like I've turned off most notifications about messages, such as like Facebook Messenger. I still end up checking my phone probably every hour, maybe probably more. Actually, it is more. Um, so, but... I choose when I want to take it, at least more than I do if I'm interrupted by a ding, like by a notification. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing is block advertising as much as you possibly can. So interestingly, as we were having this conversation, Valerie just got a notification on her phone and she had to go and deal with it quickly before we were able to continue. <laughs> well, actually, no, my sister called me, mm-hmm. and I, I quickly hung up, and then it reared it. But yeah, okay. I think with me, my anxiety when I'm, when I'm leaving my phone is, is, the, is how people are trying to contact me. Like, for mm-hmm. example, if my sister is calling me, or if I'm getting a text message, I, I always want to be there immediately. Mm-hmm. Social media is more of an addiction for my own vanity. It's crazy how it really just plays on on your emotions. And mm. our emotions are probably the most primal part of us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, there's this view in, in Western philosophy in particular that humans are these rational beings making calculated decisions all the time. And we really see this in economics. But that's not true. I, I think that we are emotional beings. And we make most, if not all, of our decisions based on how we feel about them. And then we invent rational reasons after the fact why that was a good decision to make. And yeah, so I I would say most, if not all, of our decisions are made emotionally. And, but we we have this view of ourselves that we're rational and that we make calculated decisions and we're weighing the pros and cons and I think very few, if any of us, do that. And even when we do, they're only in very narrow situations. Like maybe we do it for one percent of the decisions in our life, and the other ninety percent or ninety-nine percent are basically on autopilot. You I know? think it has to do with little self-awareness on the individual as well. And I think we need to start taking responsibility for ourselves mm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Because we cannot, for the life of us, make social change or anything if we're just raging at each other, not listening to each mm-hmm. other. Uh, so I think, at least for me, I've been challenging myself to see where I tend to stereotype people, mm-hmm. where I tend to fall into these biases. Because, okay, because before quarantine started... I just went with this general narrative, this general narrative that that was on my social media all the time. Uh and it wasn't until after after all this chaos started going down that I started questioning my opinions. Mm. And I started noticing that my opinions were not even mine because I I would get into these political conversations with people and they would not be grounded in they wouldn't be grounded firmly in what I have thought to be true. I was mm. just going off of information that I heard on the internet mm. and then I would just bring that to the conversation. I wouldn't be doing any sort of research yeah. on my own. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be considering the other side of the argument at all. It was 
unconsciously I was I was operating in a very polarizing way mm-hmm. and I didn't even know it it's really tough to tell like knowing yourself is always a difficult challenge and I think it's been, it's been a difficult challenge for all of humanity's history mm-hmm. and it seems like now there's just more competition in that area than ever and um, it seems like there are so many distractions and it's way easier to go and watch let's say another documentary on Netflix rather than sit with yourself and your feelings um, or it's way easier to go and be like ooh I feel uncomfortable oh good thing I have my phone right here next to me yeah so basically like like you know like when a baby is crying and we just like stick a soother in their mouth and it's like oh yeah okay like here's something to just calm your emotions like our phones are basically adult soothers they just distract us from our uncomfortable emotions. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that a really interesting point that you brought up is, you know, you see various information on the internet and you believe it because it makes an emotional appeal to you. Um, not necessarily because it has any rational argument to it or, or any um, good argument to it even, I'll say. It doesn't have to even be rational. Um, and interestingly in this, so... In, in psychology, there is a framework of personality called the Big Five. And it, it, um, it forms the acronym OCEAN. So what, basically what this is, is across a whole bunch of data that was collected of people, they're able to find five traits that are reasonably distinct from one another that everyone scores on somewhere. And you can tell where somebody scores on them just by looking about behavioral data about them. And so these five are like openness. So it's like, how open are you to new ideas? Um, Conscientiousness, um, basically like how orderly are you um, in your life? Extroversion, so that's contrasted by introversion. Um, Agreeableness, how much do you like to please other people? Um, And then neuroticism, which is kind of like how vain are you? Um, and it's not necessarily, um, a lot of people get confused with thoughts. It's not necessarily a negative trait. It's more like, like how much do you think about yourself in a situation? And you can tell where somebody falls on these five attributes based off of, for example, Facebook likes. Even if you have a small number of Facebook likes, like around one or 200, you can get a really good idea of where somebody is on this spectrum. And interestingly, depending where you are on the spectrum, on different parts, then you will be susceptible to being convinced by different types of emotions. So a really good example of this is actually what happened in the 2016 election in the United States, where there's a company called Cambridge Analytica that took Facebook data and was able to target specific people with specific emotional information that would try to convince them, in this case, to vote for Donald Trump. Now, Cambridge Analytica was not the only um, group doing this. They were just the most public, and they're they're kind of the ones that end up being caught doing it. Um, And there's another great documentary about this on Netflix called The Great Hack. But what I found so fascinating about this, and a little bit terrifying, is they would make an advertisement. So let's say... um, the example was uh, gun control, right? So gun control, and especially uh, the right to bear arms, is typically a right-wing uh, talking point. And so they said, okay, how can we convince people that this is important to them in their lives and that they should vote on the Republican side of this issue? And so they ran over 100 different versions of this same ad that was designed to convince people that their right to bear arms was important. And so, for example, they were able to look at people's behavioral data and they said, okay, this person is high in conscientiousness. That means that something like tradition is going to be important to them. So they will show you an advertisement that maybe has a soldier in Afghanistan carrying a gun and then maybe a Vietnam-era soldier and then a World War II-era soldier. And it's kind of like this fading back effect. And then they'll have a, uh, a caption that says like, guns passed down father to son for um, centuries, or like, not centuries, um, 
it's, it's an American tradition to pass it down from father to son. And so they're really trying to get after this. Well, you know, it is your traditional American right to bear arms. You did it. Your, your parents, your, your forebearers did it. Um, and that is a right that you have as well. And it's a right that you should protect. And then they'd show the same ad to somebody who was high in neuroticism. And it would have uh, a picture of a burglary in progress. And that the person who's being burgled might have a gun and they're holding it and they, they're, they're basically trying to defend themselves in their home. And they have a caption that says like the fourth amendment more than just an insurance policy. And it really shows how different types of information were specifically targeted and shown to specific people who are basically vulnerable to that type of emotional argument. Wow. So did they, did they send these specific kinds of advertisements um, like based on the data they've collected? Yes. So they would, they would look at your Facebook likes in particular is what Cambridge Analytica did, although there's other data sources available. Um, and from that, they would construct this personality profile of you and they would say, you specifically are high in neuroticism. So I am specifically going to show you this version of this ad because I know that it will work on you. And they were able to do this at a level of zip codes in the US. So they were able to specifically target voters who they thought were persuadable or undecided voters in specific states that were key swing states. And basically, if you're able to specifically target individuals who you think are important and who are persuadable and give them specific emotional arguments that you're reasonably sure that they will respond to in the direction that you want. And we see ads of this type all the time. This is the type of content that's shown to you on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and, and Reddit and any of the social media sites all have these similar types of algorithms where they're trying to figure out what will you respond to? What do you like? What, do you, what, will, you, what will provoke an emotional reaction in you? And this is all happening at a level that we're not even aware of. Do you know who Robert Greene is? No. He, so he's an author. He wrote the famous books, 48 Laws of Power, Power okay. Seduction. Yeah, and he was talking about how, uh, in one of his recent interviews, he was saying how the level of irrationality is staggering right now mm. in society. Mm-hmm. And we are so scared of being wrong. And the mm. last thing anyone wants to admit to themselves is how stupid they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing someone wants to admit to themselves. Mm-hmm. And, but I think admitting to ourselves that we have been polarizing ourselves, as much as we don't want to polarize our society, can we at least admit to ourselves how we ourselves as individuals are acting in a polarizing way. Mm. I mean, by dehumanizing another person, Mm -hmm. that's an act of polarity. I'd rather try to understand where that person is coming from, which is why I have been open-minded to to, uh, Trump supporters, Mm -hmm. dare I say it, Mm -hmm. because I, I don't want to just operate on one side of the spectrum one side of the whole polarity i want to understand different perspectives like can we have an unemotional conversation about what is going on about why someone would support trump Mm -hmm. why why someone wants to support biden i think because of the misinformation i'm struggling personally to know what exactly to believe Mm -hmm. so how do you think we can monitor bullshit in in our social media feeds or in our just also a lot of this is word of mouth mm-hmm. you know you know that telephone game playing mm-hmm. telephone yeah. yeah I think yeah. a lot of it is that what's going on right now oh yeah yeah and it, and like um if we go back to that meme argument right um, we were talking about how different types of information are better suited to each environment. Truth is not a selector for that. 
how true something is has almost no relevance at all to how well it spreads on social media, mm-hmm. right? Whether something is true or false does not influence how it'll spread. Actually, um, and like there's been studies done at MIT where they find that like false information spreads six times faster than true information. Wow. So this is definitely a problem. How would we overcome some of this polarization, right? Mm-hmm. I think if a solution exists, it comes back to finding our common humanity and our commonality. So much of what we focus on is what we have that's different about one another. I, I see this, um, especially in some political movements today. Um, okay, so f- first let's take the example of, of a Trump supporter. In, in a way, I really sympathize for these people. I, I do, not even in a way, I do sympathize for these people. I empathize with I these empathize. people. Yes, because a lot of them are voting for Trump out of a very real economic pain. Most of his supporters came from areas where there were coal mines or manufacturing that, that don't exist anymore. And these people are genuinely hard done economically, mm-hmm. in particular. And then I see on the left side, even with things like Black Lives Matter right now, um, I, I, I at least question how much of this is also economic, right? How much of the racial inequality we see, um, I, I'll remain agnostic on how much it's actually motiv- motivated by racism, I, I don't know, but certainly there's economic differences between people of color and most of the rest of society. Right? And interestingly, like, I think that this is a very shared pain between people on very opposite sides of this spectrum. Right? Black people saying, no, like, I, I, I can't even imagine sending my kids to college because I'm just trying to make rent. Mm-hmm. And then on the same side, you know, like a, a white person from you know, the coal belt saying, yeah, I had to foreclose on my home because the coal mine shut down and nobody... Nobody wants to live here anymore. If I have no education, I can't go to the city and, and work. And I really think that this, this splitting upon very superficial features about ourselves, it blinds us to some of the underlying commonalities that we have. And, and any solution I think exists, we, we have to rally around commonality what like all humans are so similar at so many deep levels and even if we can't you know literally relate to the exact situation somebody's been through like like i i cannot relate to experiencing a great deal of racism in my life mm-hmm. that's that's something that i i admit I, I can't relate to at a deep level i do understand the emotion of being left out of a group of, you know, I feel like being unfairly discriminated against. Um, I was always a pretty weird kid. Um, and I got socially left out a lot. Um, and so that emotion, I can really relate to. The situation specifically, not so much. Absolutely. But, you know yeah. what? You know what? And to bring that further, I really challenge people to... Find something they like about Mm. someone they don't like. Mm. Find Mm. something you like about that person. Mm. I can honestly empathize with Trump. I don't know why he would want to continue being president, to be honest. It just seems like such an immense amount of stress, especially with the media and bad publicity he gets. So back when I was a teen on Twitter... I was so into Twitter, and there was so much drama there. And mm. I, I, I would tweet literally all of my thoughts. None of my mm. thoughts were private. They were mm. all public. And the amount of stress it was to, to always be following drama, to be talked about publicly, to be shamed publicly, mm. all of that, it was just so stressful for me. Mm-hmm. And... That's when I, I, I made the choice to, you know, set boundaries on which, which aspects of my life that I want to make public and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, 
to be president with with that level of stress from the public I I I empathize with that because that that's a lot to go mm-hmm. through and it, it, it would be tough being criticized like that all day every day it's not hard to imagine somebody getting incredibly childish and defensive about that and lashing out I, I know I know that I've done that myself many times when I felt like I'm under attack from people yeah again it sparks this primal aspect of ourselves mm-hmm. and 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 I'm not coming from any sort of like Trump supporting mm-hmm. um, perspective yeah. at all it's just looking at it from human being to human being yeah. that's a lot and I think if we want to make radical change in the world then we're going to have to start humanizing one another a lot mm-hmm. more I, I completely agree, yeah. You, you have to find your common humanity. And you can... I think that disagreements between humans are really good in a way, as long as we can still see that other person as human. But as soon as we start dehumanizing, like, for example, like if I call Trump um, a racist pig, right? I've dehumanized him. I have denied him his basic humanity. I've called him a pig, an animal. And that might not sound like a terrible insight, a, a terrible insult. Certainly he himself has, has thrown worse insults at people. But I don't think that that's an excuse for me to deny other people their humanity, even if I radically disagree with literally everything that comes out of their mouths. Yeah, um, we, have to, we have to step outside of our desire to yeah. be right yes. all the time. Yes. And also acknowledge that in the world of information politics is nasty and Mm. and i yeah it's going to be an interesting next four years to see it it very well might be um i i know like during during this this quarantine i've really tried to avoid election news coming out of the u.s as much as possible yeah um and despite trying as hard as I can, it still reaches me. And every vision of it that I get is like a reality TV show gone wrong. I don't, I, I don't even know if it's gone wrong. I think that like our politics have become reality TV. They've become this, this emotional drama, attention-grabbing phenomenon, like entertainment phenomenon. Yeah, we're operating in diluted information. Yes. And I think that's what terrifies me, just how we're operating on the information that an algorithm is feeding us. Mm-hmm. And we're not even and, and, fully aware yeah. of that. And, and that algorithm is not designed to give you good information. It's designed to give you information that will trigger you emotionally to keep you invested in it right so like it's it's not optimizing at all for anything good and this is really what has made me quite sad about computers um, and technology more generally in the last definitely five years but in the last decade i guess is like as a kid I always thought technology and computers were fascinating. And, you know, you had these, like, Star Trek versions of the future. Um, and more and more as I've, I've grown up, that, that vision has really faded. And it's difficult to reconcile with the fact that I still think technology and computers can be a positive influence on our lives. But most of what I see right now, there are horrible negative influences. Mm. Um, and any positives that come out of them, I, at least as things are currently formulated, I think the, the, the negatives are really outweighing the positives at the moment. At the moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how can we how can we adjust that? How can we start using technology more to our advantage? Because it's it's integrated into our society, whether we like it or not, mm. and we depend on it now more than ever. So, what are the next steps? we should take because okay actually a thought that occurred to me after watching the social dilemma was if 
if there's an algorithm feeding us information, imagine imagine what good information we could put out there. Mm-hmm. What 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 good we can do for for the world to mm-hmm. just try to make the world more whole and not so divided. Imagine what we could do with that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very powerful technology, right? And we have in a way decided or at least our business models have decided for us that we want to maximize profits. And instead of that, you know, there's been lots of people who've proposed like, you know, we should try to maximize human happiness rather than gross domestic product or something like that. It's, it's difficult. I mean, that that's embedded in a a whole field of economics that I know I'm certainly not an expert in. So to answer your question of like, you know, how do we make this a a good thing? How do we change this from being something that's negative into something that's positive? I don't think I have answers, but I do have a lot of questions. And most of them revolve around asking, what does it mean to be human? You know, what does it mean to have a computer as part of me? There's this idea of being cyborgs that has floated around for the last century or so. Um, and everyone thinks of that as like, oh, you know, it literally means that you have to have like, you know, your arm cut off and replaced by a robotic one. It's like, well, no, that's not true. Um, you know, he's like, is the watch on my wrist, you know, it's, it's one of those smart watches. Um, is that count as being uh, a cyborg? That example we did earlier of the, you know, using a calculator as part of my brain, this, these machines have become part of us. Yeah. And we have to ask the questions, okay, how is this a part of us? How does that change us as humans? And how do we move forward making that relationship a healthy and a positive one? And we're just beginning to ask those types of questions because throughout our entire history, as far as you know, the definition of, of what is human is always a very changeable one. And we even saw that like throughout the, the 20th century, many of the positive social advances that we saw were when we changed the definition of, of what it means to be a person. You know, at the beginning um, of the 1900s, we did not consider women legally people. They were legally property. Mm-hmm. Same thing with pretty much every ethnic minority. And it was basically like, yeah, white men are the only thing in this world that is a human, like in its full, like a person in its fullest form. And that story is, is obviously wrong. And we can see that really clearly now today. And so the challenge we have is, okay, how do we continue to add computers into this mix? Um, Because I don't think the computers are going away. Like, we can't just turn off the switch and say, like, yeah, this whole, like, internet thing, this experiment didn't work. Let's just, let's, one day, let's just turn it all off. (laughs) Like, we can't do that. That's, unfortunately, it's it's not a workable solution. So we, we have to find a way to keep our humanity in that and grow our humanity and ask ourselves, well, what does humanity even mean? What is important in that? What are, what are the emotions that we want to have in our life? What are the experiences we want to have? How do we want to relate to others? Um, how do we want computers to emulate that? Do we just want them to be cold, hard calculus machines that treat me as an attention resource to be maximized with advertising revenue? I certainly don't want that, but that's how I feel a lot of the time these days. Mm-hmm. So recognizing our agency as well in relationship to these machines. Yes. Because these are evolving, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm one of the people, I'm one of those people that choose to have a positive outlook on Mm -hmm. where things are going, not bypassing all of the negative stuff that's happening right Mm -hmm. now, but I really, 
I believe that when we choose to take responsibility for ourselves, the mm -hmm. individual in relationship to this new technology and to how we relate to the outside world and also to how we choose to relate to ourselves and be radically honest with ourselves mm -hmm. and our own inner conflicts, then I think we can really, we can really start to see some sort of shift. It will take time. Yeah, definitely. And, and we have to be patient. Um, but I, I agree with you said, we, ha we have to be honest with ourselves. And it's so hard to do. It's the hardest part. It is. It is. <laughs> I don't want to look at myself in the mirror and think mm -hmm. you have been, you have been deluded or mm -hmm. you've been playing into this polarity mm -hmm. or your opinions, are they really yours? And do you really think that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know for, for me, it's been a lot around self-image, right? And feeling like I am enough. You know, like it's never been easier to, let's say, you know, take something that you love and you think you're kind of good at it. Um, let's say playing the piano. I'm, I'm not a good piano player, but let's say that I loved it. And, you know, you can just look on the internet, you know, like 12 year old kid, amazing piano player. And there'll be tons of videos of just people doing this way better than you. And no matter what skill you seem to pick, there's going to be somebody out there who makes you feel like you're bad at it. Mm. And that's an emotion that I don't think is helpful. Yeah. Um, it just creates a lot of negative self-talk and it's, it stops you in your tracks. It stops you from being honest with yourself and you end up just punching yourself down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we could go on and on <laughs> for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And I think this has been such a good conversation. <laughs> it's been really fun. It's Thank been you. awesome. And Eric, I know you're not on social media really all that much at all. <laughs> at all. Um, not much, no. But is there anywhere people could find you or in the future could anyone find anything that you... That, I, that I've done? Um, or is there... I don't know. Are you going to ever create a website for yourself? I, I do have a, a website for myself. It's, oh. it's ericrpatterson.com. Um, so it's, it's my name with, with an R in the middle, uh, for my middle name. There's not a lot on there at the moment. Um, maybe I'll go and add more, more in the future, but I've never been one to really use social media that much. If you, if somebody does want to contact me, there is, there is a contact page there and you can do that. I don't promise that I respond to things very well. Um, but yeah. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> All right. Lovely talking with you, Val. That was awesome. I'm just so thankful to have people in my life that are able and willing to have hard conversations and choose to see from multiple perspectives and make an educated decision from there. We still have these highly primitive aspects of ourselves that are biting us in the ass because we're not actually realizing that we are still primitive in many ways. And these emotionally charged primitive aspects of ourselves are what are getting triggered on social media. We can't operate rationally when we are enraged. We really need to reevaluate the relationship we have to our social media. Most importantly, we need to evaluate the common denominator behind it all, and that is each and every single individual. Each and every single one of us. Yes, I'm talking to you. We really need to look in the mirror and be radically honest with ourselves and take responsibility for how we may have added to the problems that we're so angry about. When you're speaking out, speak out with the intention of making things whole again, not being divisive. If you're angry, that's okay. Honor that. But don't act on that. Reflect on it and... Think of a socially and emotionally intelligent way of expressing it. And be careful with the words you're using with people you disagree with. Keep getting into non-emotional dialogue with people you disagree with so that you can genuinely have an understanding of the other side. 
literally be the change you want to see. Choosing one side of the polarity is not progressive. It still creates an us versus them dynamic. I think integrating both sides of the extremes together is what's going to lead to the radical change we want to see. I'll leave you there with that. Thank you so much for tuning in and having an open mind. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic, so please DM me on social media and let's have an open adult dialogue from human to human. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.